Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, a shout out to our new Patreon supporter, Dennis Sell. Thank you so much for your support. And if any of you want to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash liturgy. This week, we are talking about the temple. It's an amazing conversation and one that Dennis loves to talk about. So without further ado, episode 32 of season three of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Do you know what the sound is, Jesse? Um, it's the sound of your mind thinking about temples. Doesn't it sound a bit like a crackling fire at Christmas? Oh, morning? a little bit, yeah. These are actually the paper tabs on my Sacre Sign and Cotillion, which we are not going to talk about now. Yes. Because Chris has Aww. begged with admiration and... I knew I'd get my way eventually. And even tears <laughs> that we talk about something else. So what are we talking about? What are we talking about, Chris? What are we talking about? What are we talking about? What have you asked me to talk about? Uh, this is a special request for me, for Dennis this to talk about. This one goes out to Chris Carson and about Soldier's Grove. the temple. Uh, and part no of it temple. is because uh, I was do- trying to do some writing competently on churches and reviewing. Harder uh, than of, you think. Oh, isn't it's a it? lot harder. And uh, was reviewing some temple history. And so when I got done, I asked Dennis to read the chapter, and he had all sorts of comments and straightened out a lot of confusions that I had. And I thought, hey, well, I like, I learned a lot from that. If you're confused so, about the temple, raise your hand. Yeah. If oh, you're confused yeah, about the temple, raise your hand. Why should you care about the temple? Well, from a Christian point of view, Jesse, why should we care about the temple? Because it is integral in terms of what is happening in the liturgy. Why should we care about the temple? Because Christ is the temple. Yes, and what does that mean? What is a temple, a fundamental, basic Christian concept? Is A temple is a place for sacrifice. Even before that. Where God is. Yes. Where God, who is far, far away, ineffable, you might say, nonetheless becomes encounterable into our realm. And so the basic definition of Chris, temple, you didn't know that? It's the residence <laughs> or the location of the deity who is encounterable in a very particular place yeah it seems it's a very christological question because if jesus is the new temple and the fulfillment of all of these signs and you don't know anything about the uh, the tents or the temples that came before him then you, you're really you're not seeing christ clearly wait either. wait wait christ is the place where you encounter god it's where then, humanity and creation and god coexist exist you know, perfectly. i always heard christ was a temple and like i get it you know yeah. from the, but like that is really got across and christ is made of many parts members in the mystical body, what's a temple made of? One big cave? No. no. Many? Lots of stones. Ah, so you, Jesse, and your Catholic friends, your Christian friends, are living stones, stones assembled in the temple of God. In other words, body parts of Jesus, or members of the mystical body, and the many parts of a building have this kind of one-to-one correspondence. Of course, Christ fulfills all that stuff, but it's a signification of the mystical body of Christ eventually. 
And it's much more than that, of course. But when the, you know, the apostles are like, oh, Christ is the new temple, or when he says the temple will be torn down and rebuilt in three days, and they say he's talking about the temple of his body, that's a very particular claim. How did they know that, right? Like, how did they know any of this stuff? Was it on the road to Emmaus? Was it the 40 days he was with them after the resurrection? And he explained lots of stuff, not written down here, whatever it is. Somehow it became part of the Christian tradition, or the oral tradition. And this is what we mean by tradition versus just scripture alone. So scripture and tradition. Tradition is how you understand scripture. And this temple and temple-like things are all through the Bible from Eve and Adam in the garden to the book of Revelation. What's so the, wait, what's from the, A to Z. What's the temple in the garden? What is the temple in the garden? Is the garden is the garden the temple? The yes. So the temple shows up from the Garden of Eden all the way to the Book of Revelation. What is the temple in the Garden of wait, Eden? Wait, I don't remember a temple in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, where's that Do great you, building that Adam and Eve go and worship God? Oh, hold on. There's no there's no temple in the Garden of Eden, but there's walls. Weren't they like kicked out? So there's got to be some type of border. Well, yeah, there's a gate, and it's mentioned when they're kicked out. That okay, the so puts the, but they encounter God in the garden everywhere. Yeah, And they're in right relationship with God, and God's presence is sort of all over, and nature is not hostile to them because there's no scorpions, although there is that snake. Those questions how that got in there. But nonetheless, they're in right relationship with each other, they're in right relationship with creation, and they're in right relationship with God. They just talk to God like, whoa, hey, hey, God, hello, here we are. Just to delay this uh, podcast to make it longer than it needs to be. So after, this is a Louis, uh, Louis Bouillet uh, insight. He says, in the beginning, everything was sacred. So today we think of uh, when you consecrate something, you got this profane world out there, and you're going to carve a little sacred space out of it for the gods. But he says, in the history of religion, and even in our own faith, it was absolutely the opposite. Everything was sacred. And it wasn't until Adam sinned that he carved out a little profane space just for himself. He hid himself. And so originally, everything was a temple, everything was sacred, but then we created profanity out of that, and gradually it's just spread and spread and spread. Right. So if you read scripture carefully, God wants to give Adam and Eve even more. He wants to give them a greater share in his own divine being. And... Uh, sort of wait for me I'll give it to you but what do they do they grasp for it and they say we will know the difference between good and evil and this is the tree of knowledge and the things that God has and so they kind of blow it right so they're not destroyed the goodness is not destroyed but they're out of perfect relationship with each other because they start blaming each other they're out of relationship with nature because nature won't just grow food on trees anymore they have to go out and grow by the sweat of their brow they're out of relationship with even yourself you're kind of a constant battle with yourself your yeah. body doesn't listen to i don't want to blame well. eve but here i am blaming eve to cover my own blankety blank so there you go everything and then they're out of very perfect relationship with god there's still a relationship but it's not perfect so the question is what do you do at that point well you as a person, can't restore all of creation to what God had it originally. So God shows up and says, hey, guess what? You blew it and you're doing all this stuff. You're, you know, worshiping false gods. You're coveting your neighbor's goods. You're uh, bearing false witness. And so like the first step toward the restoration of the, the condition of right relationship with God is in a sense, the law. Don't do bad stuff. But then from then on, how does this salvation mission come about? Uh, it's not just sit in the corner um, because you're bad and then you know i'll let you off the hook it's i have to train all of humanity and bring all of creation back to uh back to me that's what the father would say so oh, how does he, a lot of work how does he do it primarily so skip for the moment run all the way to the new testament what does god actually do he, he comes down himself right and creates that that bridge so he comes down as a, a spirit intangible spirit and shoots no, magic lightning bolts out of as, his hands and as says Jesus Christ you are restored no, no he allows the restoration by giving a path to 
salvation. Yes, but in, he also causes the restoration by becoming man, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of being outside of creation in a sense, he enters into it and humanity, fallen humanity and, and God's divinity kind of become one in the incarnation. And so humanity becomes in a sense the attribute of God again. And so it's brought back to restoration. So there are these lines like Christ took all creation on himself. Well, what does that mean? He's like covered in trees and Sounds like there's stars. some type of uh, salvific perichoresis, <laughs> what I would call <laughs> there it. There you go. Some salvific dancing around. He comes here and he takes all that we're not and brings it back to God the Father so that it can be restored. Uh, and all that we are and brings it back to him. So that's the end being like the beginning. That's what the prophets always say. The end will be like the beginning. The desert will be a garden again. So you've got all that stuff. So how do you encounter the garden if you live in the desert? Well, the first thing, right after God says, here's how to how to live with the Ten Commandments, almost right away he says to Moses, you know, go up to the mountain and I'll give you this vision. And he gives him a vision of what, Chris? tent the the tent of meeting meeting. sometimes it's called the the uh, tabernacle of moses which was this portable tent kind of thing but it wasn't just a tent like you go camping in. it was very serious long long descriptions in um so it's like glamping exodus (laughs) is that a thing yeah glamour 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 camping oh man (laughs) the first glampers yeah chosen people but there were uh you know the big outer courtyard and there was this big laver is a big pot of water and then there was the altar and the sacrifice and then there was a little area in the back that was kind of like the holy of holies and the ark of the covenant was in there in the ark of the covenants the golden box with the two angels that was god's throne on earth so god's saying hey you in a sense left me i'm going to come back to you and for the moment i'm going to give you a little controlled way to encounter me in this architectural rendition of heaven and then this architectural rendition of earth and the priest is going to be the one who goes back and forth between earth and heaven and so architecturally and artistically they have to say this little bit of space is different this is the restored kind of place of creation uh, sort of sacramentally uh, proto-sacramentally revealed Yes, Chris. Would you just stop and explain that one more time? What if, uh, describe, if you were looking at this tent in the wilderness, describe what you would see. If, I don't know if you remember those art exhibits by that artist named Cristo who would run like long fabric things. You lost along me the highway. at art exhibit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So imagine you had a 10 foot tall roll of fabric. And you set up a bunch of fence posts all the way around and you put the fabric all the way around and you created this precinct inside. Um, It would be sort of like setting up a plaza or piazza, as you might see in Rome, you know, with walls on every side, except it's fabric. And then within that was a kind of front courtyard. And then there was a a more enclosed place uh, that would be like almost like going in a building, like in the tent itself. Do you know, uh, this really putting you on your spot, this this outer perimeter, is it like the size of a football field or a city block it's probably some number of cubits um four woven layers of curtains 48 15 foot tall standing wooden boards overlaid in gold so 15 feet tall so story and a half of a building pretty much um that was on the inside of the tent walls it's in Exodus 25 through 40, really, is okay. where the description is. But it's very complicated. So this fabric, you know, I said compare it like a big sheet of fabric, but it's very um, specific, different kinds of wool, different colors of wool, different clasps. So they're bronze clasps, silver clasps, gold clasps. It's hard to say that so many times. And the closer you got to God, the, up, the higher the metal went. So it was kind of this movement from bronze to silver to gold, these clasps. hold the fabric to the poles so think of like the little hooks you put on your curtains you know to hold onto the curtain rod it's sort of like the clasps the clasps (laughs) (laughs) 
But you're in the desert, right? And you're walking around and you're, you've got all this stuff, you know, how do you, how do you make all these things? You know, there's a lot of question about where all this material came from. They th- often think a lot of it came from later from the Egyptians and they took the kind of Egyptian stuff with them and made these things. So you got the big outer thing and then there's a, a, an in, a smaller area and that's where the altar and this water right. waver. Right. So imagine a shoebox. And then you take like half a shoebox and add it to the end of the shoebox. So there's sort of like a big rectangular area, and then there's kind of a square area in the back, or cubic area in the back. The cubic area in the back was enclosed, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was God's throne. So that little room, that's cubic room, was the seat of God. It's the throne holy, of God. Holy of Holies? Later it became known as the Holy of Holies. And then the courtyard out front was known as the holy place. That was the sort of the architectural image of the earth. And that's courtyard. where the animal was sacrificed. Was so... Back then, the altar was on the outside, which is interesting. Yeah. So in a sense, the place of the victim is outside of creation, right? Because Christ has not come yet to restore creation back into the heavenly realm. So it's very interesting that in the Christian tradition, we take the altar and put it inside because the altar is Christ and Christ is now in heaven back with the Father at the right hand of the Father. So mm-hmm. it's in the Holy of Holies again. And so, you know, the tabernacle, Colonel Ratzinger says, is, is the successor of the um Ark of the Covenant, I mean, our tabernacle today, the golden box where God abides with his people is very much like the golden box where God abides with his people in the uh, early books of the Bible. So they're moving around a lot. And then finally they settle in Jerusalem. And uh, the story, of course, is that King David has this realization one day, like he builds himself a big palace there. And then he has this realization or a sort of mystical vision that he is dwelling in a house of stone and God is dwelling in this tent. And he sees like this problem with a decorum that God's house is more, uh, is less glorified than his own. So he initiates this building project and his son Solomon really is the one uh, who completes it. It's, it's all there in first Kings and second Chronicles. We're talking like 970 BC. So roughly around 1000 uh, BC. And they had an architect with a name. His name was Hiram of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, which is a city closer to the uh, Mediterranean. It was known for its cedar. So sometimes you hear about cedar from Tyre or gold from Tyre, places like that. The Many of the parts of the of the temple had to come from all over the place. And so sometimes you see some, some of the Psalms and they'll say, you know, the Queen of Sheba gives you this and this gives you that. And the idea was that all of creation, all of the nations of the world, in a sense, brought the different things that would make the temple, just like all the people from all the nations of the world would eventually make the temple of Christ's body and the mystical body. And so it's all this prefiguring. With, with this Christian overlay, you see how it's all prefiguring Christ. God comes. He's part of our participation. He gives us this little tiny place to live like they lived in the Garden of Eden with right relationship and right worship, but that eventually would all become superseded by Christ, even though that's a tough word. Supersession is usually a, a divisive word in ecumenical relations, but in the Christian worldview, it's the completion and fulfillment of that. And this temple that Solomon built is shaped like the... the a shoebox. Yep. Shoe Except now it's stone, and okay, it's permanent, it's okay. and it's up on the current mountain, you know, that we call the Temple Mount in Jerusalem still to this day. Um, there are different theories about what that mountain was. Uh, some people argue that that's the place where Abraham went up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac and then didn't, or that was the place. There's a story about, um, who was it? Uh, there, well, there was some guy who saw the avenging angel um, coming to, th- to destroy uh, humanity. And then he went and said, you know, repent, repent. Everybody put sackcloth on. And then the avenging oh, angel didn't come. Uh, just starts Ezekiel. with a J. Uh, oh, oh. Jeremiah? No, it's, it's, a, it's a, a name that's not very uh, common. Uh, Jesse? <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, so it was associated with this place of potential destruction that then gets averted. 
if the, uh, I, it would have been from you that I heard this from. Wasn't this where the, the waters of the flood were also thought to have right. come out of that? It was considered to be the place where Adam was buried. It was considered to be the place oh. where the flood waters would came up at the time of Noah's ark. And so when Jesus says to Peter, you're a rock and on this rock, I'll build my church. In other words, the rock is the great plug of the mm-hmm. flood. Instead of water coming out of a spigot, imagine it coming out of the drain and you put the plunger in there to keep it in there. So Peter is the sense has this power over heaven and earth and what you bind on heaven is bound on earth. So if he binds the hell, then he has that power. So Christ gives it to him at this place where his long sacrifice would have been prefigured. So whether you believe any of this stuff or not, though, you have to admit, that particular piece of real estate is, is yeah. There, there's it's the most important place cool. in the whole world, even mm-hmm. today. Cool. Right, right. So even before the Christian revelation, the, the Jews thought of this space, this place, is very important. Right, lots of things happen there. Now, whether it's mythological or historically accurate, I mean, that's where all the discussion comes in. But whether it's historically accurate or not, the point that you know the truth is more important than the facts sometimes, and some they hopefully they work together. But this was the place where God did what He wanted to do set up this place of right worship. And then the temple itself was much more um, intentionally filled with images. So it had the the altar outside and this big giant, it was called the laver. They called it the molten sea or the sea is filled with water. It was 75,000 liters is how they describe it. So that's a lot of Coke bottle. No, it's 150,000 liters, 75,000 Coke bottles, two liter Coke bottles, a lot of water, this big golden, imagine a big giant cauldron, you know, like, which is, you know, bubble, bubble, toil and trouble. And it was sitting on top of these 12 oxen that held it up. And uh, you see this very often today in a lot of, uh, Latter-day Saints, what people call Mormons, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, their baptismal fonts look like that to this day. They have the 12 oxen under it with the baptismal font on top of it because it comes out of the temple uh, tradition. A lot of description of what it should look like, but the first room was uh, called the Hekal. That was the um, image of the earth. So it had cedar panels with uh, plants and flowers and leaves and angels. Was there anything in that room? Or was the, the altar and the laver was outside and the Holy of Holies was in another spot. Was there anything right. in that? Hall? In that room were the golden lampstands. There were these um, golden tables that had the showbread on them, which were these 12 loaves of bread that were brought into the presence of God. So the first fruits offering um, was often a bread. We tend to think of first fruits as sort of oranges and lemons and stuff, but the green and the best bread uh, would be brought to the temple. Then that was brought into the presence of God and it became the bearer of divinity. So what you see in all of this is this new earth that's glorified, these panels of carved trees, flowers, buds, angels, nature, and heaven interacting. And then the room behind it was the uh, Debir or the Holy holy of Holies. That's the image of heaven and God's throne was there. And you know, Jesse, what separated the two rooms, right? Yeah. A veil. <laughs> the veil, yes. Which is like a great big curtain. Imagine you're at a Broadway show and there's a big red velvet curtain. How, how big curtain? You know, I don't, really I don't, I don't know the height, cu- but how many cubits? Ah, uh, gosh, you know, I should know this. The, the, the Holy of Holies was 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. The, the cubit cu- was the length of the forearm of theoretically of the About king. A foot and a half. Yeah. I mean, think of your forearm, look at it. You know, it's okay. You know, so 18 f- cubits is uh, so, 27 feet. So it's pretty big. Right. And then they, there was said to be a hand's breadth thick. So like not, not the thick, not the thin end of your hand, but you know, the wide. So if your hand is like four inches wide, imagine a curtain four inches thick. That's wow. all made of wool. 30 feet tall. So it's that a lot thick. of wool. 
And so it's a, it's a huge thing to make this veil. You had four different colors of fab, of um, material in it, three different colors of wool and one of linen. So you had to grow this linen. I don't know if you know anything about linen, but fullers are the people who make linen. So if you know anybody with the name Fuller and their last name, those are linen makers. It was very complicated because flax is this very difficult plant to work and you have to use all these caustic chemicals and you, people who were fullers had a very unpleasant job. It was a lot of work. It was the earth. So linen was brown and earthy and the idea was the earth comes into this veil. But then there were three colors of wool. One was scarlet red, like fire or the stars. One was purple. It was the sea or the blood of fish in the blue water. So the red blood and blue water made purple. And then the other was, um, what did I say? Purple, scarlet, and the other was blue, right? So that's the sky. So you have earth, air, fire, and water, which are the four ancient symbols of all of creation. And so then you have this notion, all of creation, hmm, right? So what happens to the veil when Christ dies on the cross? It is torn. It is torn, it is right? It's terrible. So you can finally <laughs> see the, the play too, behind though, the curtain. From which direction is it torn? Top top to bottom? Yeah. So this person suggested, made sense to me, that it's God the one who's doing the tear. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, it'd have to be, right? Because we can't do it, right? We can't do yeah, it ourselves. it's really thick. So if Christ took all creation on himself, and then it's sort of destroyed in him, but then resurrected, right? So if the veil is all creation, then it goes with him and is glorified and restored. So heaven and earth become more one. They're still separate rooms, but now you can sort of see the play. The actors can talk to you on the other side of the Broadway uh, stage. And eventually the idea is the two will become one as they did in Christ. So would you say that Christ made God more available to us? <laughs> Less veiled. Oh, right. But yeah. more available. The veil itself in some of the descriptions said that it had stars and planets and angels angels and flowers. It was this highly embroidered thing. Um, so that was another sense of, of the cosmos being present on the veil or the all of creation being represented on the veil. So the veil hides God, right? Because God's behind it in the Holy of Holies, but it also reveals God because it reveals God's creation. And this is how sacramental things work. Christ's body reveals God, right? He says, he who sees me sees the Father, and there's this transfiguration when you can see the glory. But for most of the time, it it hides God. And so the veil is Christ. And then when Christ's body is torn, the veil is torn and then the things of heaven have access to earth and vice versa. And so this is making it as it was in the beginning when the whole of the garden was the temple. So eventually that's, that uh, temple is torn down. Okay. And, and that's called the first temple. So you went from the, the tent to the Solomon's first, The first temple, right? Okay. So that was destroyed in 598 by the Babylonian king or Neo-Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And for a while, the uh, Israelites are kind of wondering what to do. Uh, but then there's this bad guy named Cyrus the Great who was um, um, enslaved them, really. But then he gave them permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. He actually said, okay, fine, I'll help you even. So Cyrus is the th often held up as the kind of thing that God uses sort of enemies of the people to advance God's causes anyway. So, you know, imagine if you had converted some really bad corporate COO who's living a terrible, immoral life. And he says, well, I'm not going to be a Christian, but here's a billion dollars, you know, go build a church. He said, okay, God even uses that person to, to advance the, the mission of the church. And so that was um, rebuilt around 516 BC and went on for a long time. It was rebuilt under the governor Zerubbabel. So sometimes you hear that name. Bezalel was the guy who made the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. This is the temple Moses. that Christ went to on Passover. No. Oh. Well, yes, sort of. no, <laughs> this, yes, this is where no. it gets confused. So I'm intrigued. Christ is spoken of as existing in the time of what they call Second Temple Judaism, which is a little bit 
tricky. And this is the second temple. This is the second temple, right? Sounds Rebuilt easy. under Cyrus, under the governor Zerubbabel. However, Herod, who's the king in Christ's time, you know, he's the bad guy who kills the babies, trying to get rid of the threat to his throne in the, you know, the innocence, the massacre of the innocents. He wants to rebuild the temple because they generally think it's not so hot, right? So imagine your church burns down and you don't have a lot of money to rebuild it and you build this kind of crummy thing. And then the new king or the new pastor or the new bishop comes along and says, you know what? That cathedral is not really great. We're going to give it the dignity that it deserves. So they, under Herod, who was really interested in architecture, he built all kinds of stuff, wants to build this great new temple that would be up to the dignity of the Roman Empire and all that. He's trying to show the Romans how Roman he can be. He's trying to show the Jews how Jewish he can be because the, the, the area of Judea is very complicated to govern. He was the only one who governed for as long as he did. It was like 30-something years. Everybody else had a very short reign because nobody could hold this together. The Romans, the Jews, the local people and all that. So he's like this bloodthirsty guy who's ruling with an iron rod. And he has to keep the – he's a, a client king of the Roman Empire. So he has to tell them – Hey, I'm pretty Roman. I, you know, the Jews aren't revolting. I'm keeping them under control. I'm very Roman. You know, emperor, I'm doing your job. I'm subduing these people. But then he has to say to the Jews, I'm not really Roman. I'm one of you because, you know, even though those Romans are here. Classic and, politician. Well, exactly, right? <laughs> and he actually had a Roman parent and a Jewish parent, right? So he was born into both of these worlds as Christ was in some way, right? Because he's born into the Roman empire, right? The, the Roman client King wants to kill him from the day he's born. And yet at the same time, he's Jewish, right? So he kind of gets all this stuff together and you see how the church comes out of the Jewish tradition and the Roman tradition really from the early days. Um, so back to the second temple question, the Jews are like, uh, we don't trust you, Herod. You know, you say you're Jewish, but you're really not. I think this is some plot just to destroy the temple so you can get rid of us. Right? And there were some stories that the Roman emperor wanted to put some Roman god in the temple of Jerusalem. Um, and Herod talked them out of it. And so they were very suspicious of the Romans because they weren't really friends of the Jews. And there was even a, a fortress called the Antonia Fortress built right at the Temple Mount where the Roman soldiers would hang out so that if the Jews got out of line, they could bring everything back into order. And they did come out a few times to restore creation. I mean, not restore creation, restore order there. This happens the same time, the Temple Mount now, right? Every now and then there's a protest and the police have to come out and bring everybody back to order. So Herod says, you know, I'm not really destroying your temple. I'm just building it better. I'm just <laughs> renovating, right? So the idea is that it's not a new temple. It's just the second temple brought back glorification. And part of the reason that's very important is because in a lot of Jewish understanding, the third temple would signal the coming of the Messiah, right? So if you don't think Christ is the Messiah, then you don't think there's a third temple. And so you have to call it the second temple because that's the one that says the Messiah hasn't come yet. In the Christian worldview, they'd say, yeah, we didn't need a third temple building because Christ's body was the temple and he was the Messiah and the third temple at the same time. So it's the third temple is actually the second temple. The first temple is the first, the second is the second, but the third is also the second, except that it's the third. Does that make sense? Starting to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you have sure. 2A and 2B. Kind of, right. Yeah, okay. So, you know, if your house got a major renovation, you barely could see the original house, uh -huh. it would pretty much be a new house, I but house like your that. first house is still in there <laughs> uh, somewhere. All right. So what did this look like? But it'd be like if the, uh, ooh, here's an example. Yes. This is like uh, Notre Dame. You have the church building, and there's a lot of people who say, what are we going to do about this? But it's actually owned by the government, right? Mm -hmm. So the government's like is going to come in and say, well, we're going we're gonna to make this the way that we wanted to make it. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think Herod wanted it to conform to the, Jew, the, the biblical descriptions. I mean, the, the temple is clearly described in several places in Scripture. And then there are prophetic visions of the heavenly temple, Ezekiel sees, you know, this perfect temple in heaven. And so they're trying to reconcile, how can we make this conform to the but vision the, that Moses the received? The country of France wants the renovation of Notre Dame to reflect what the country of France wants. Right. But that's because yeah. they're totally secularized. Yeah. But, I mean, in the time of Herod... He's trying to let the Jews know we're doing the Jewish thing yeah, and trying to stay close to the temp, the uh, proportions given by God, the vision of Moses, and then as built by Solomon and, and so on. So they're trying to be Jewish, but make it better. So what he does is he makes it way, way bigger and more grand. The, the courtyards that are around it are, are immense. Thousands and thousands of people can fit in there. So you, what once used to be this, this curtain that you were talking about that's 15 feet tall are now these enormous... Walls and porticos. Well, the curtain, the veil you're talking. Oh, the 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 curtain around the t- the tabernacle yeah. of Moses. Right now, that you have this big building, and then the big courtyards. Imagine, you know, the biggest classical plaza piazza you've ever seen, and then multiply it by a lot. There were 256 columns around the inside of the courtyard Holy cow. that were each almost 30 feet high, single pieces of stone. So they were brought in from the wow. the quarries. And uh, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can find one of those columns that fell off the cart on the way to the building site and it cracked. So they just left it there. And then eventually as time went by, you know, all the dust sort of buried it. And so in the 19th, I think late 19th century, they found it. And it's still there. It's in this neighborhood of Jerusalem. You just walk around, ho-hum, let's go get a burger. How did they get there? And then there's this there? column from the time of Herod, just on carts with like uh, a oxen. Co- like a columbus? A columbus. Oh, man, Jesse. <laughs> Jesse. Put that one down in the records of like top 10 jokes I've ever made. Will you do, you do that, Chris? Okay, thanks. Right. So there's the temple building. Christ would have seen it. The apostles would have seen it. It was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman emperor, um, uh, or the Romans anyway. The, the Titus was the uh, conquering colonel, I guess, or general. And uh, they actually took the veil out of the temple and brought it back to Rome, but nobody knows what happened to it. The tabernacle or the 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 Ark of the Covenant, of course, had been lost earlier. That's what I was going to ask. It never, came, was, it never yeah. came back because they weren't just going to make another one. They wanted to find the original one. So when uh, Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, the Ark went somewhere. Right. And, and nobody still knows nobody where it knows where oh, it was. Okay. Right. So when, when um, Cyrus and who was the – Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel, yeah. Okay, so when they built the second temple, it was they just did, an empty room. Yeah, which is amazing, right? Because what's the whole point of going into the temple is the throne of God. You go into God's presence. You become holy. So already there was this kind of odd thing. The Romans, when they conquered it, they were like, whoa, we went into the, the sacred precinct, inner sanctum of this temple, and there's nothing in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they expected to see, you know, Jupiter or something, you know, God, the, whoever the Hebrew God was. And they went in there, nothing in there. And so, you know, there's this question of external form of going through all the ceremonies as they're described and God's not in it, right? So is there already this sense that the, the worship is kind of breaking down and waiting for fulfillment to Christ to say, okay, you know, here's what, uh, here's how I fulfill all this. So it gets destroyed in 70 AD and really never rebuilt for the most part. Um, there are some early descriptions of Christians going up to the Temple Mount, to the rock underneath the uh, Holy of Holies, and taking bits out of it. You know, I think, uh, is it Egerius? Who's the, who's the one who goes to Rome in the third, fourth century? Egeria, that's right. She talks about uh, seeing that and being there. But that's the kind of the history of the building types, uh, or the buildings as they are. It's kind of complicated stuff. But the point of it all is you have this special, and I will use the word space here, inside the temple was different than anywhere else. Uh, a temple is a microcosm of restored creation. 
And so you see in the walls of the temple, this carving of plants and leaves and flowers and buds and all that. It's the place where God dwells so that God's presence is there. It's to leave there is to go outside of time and to go outside of the typical earthly space and to go into this microcosm, this micro creation of everything restored as it should be. So the idea is in that little building is this perfect reunited world with God and humanity and all creation, just like the Garden of Eden. And then the idea is to templeize the world. I think that's something David Fagerberg talks about, to let that temple stuff out the doors of the church so that it's not just a little box, a little building, but that the world slowly becomes as it was in the beginning. And this is why the heavenly Jerusalem doesn't have a temple either, right? Because the whole thing is right relationship between God, humanity, creation, and there's no special building. So that was, apparently that was an old trick that people used to say to um, people studying theology, what would the perfect heaven, church building in heaven look like? And, you know, people would say, oh, it looked like this or like that. And it was the trick question, you know, and you go to there the book. There would be no building. Well, there's no necessity, right? Because the building is a microcosm and in a sense, a temporary place of perfect existence and right relationship between humanity, yourself, creation, and God. And then the world eventually will become that again at the end of time. I've wondered about that point because I think it says somewhere in Revelation that the Lamb Himself is the temple or something like that. But heaven is is described as, you know as having walls and gates and doors and right. Lamps but and what so. are the walls made of? Gold. Well, and they're gems. golden and stones, right? So the yeah. living stones, these gems. So there were twelve gems on the high priest. That we didn't even talk about what the high priest did in the temple, but he anything brought into the presence of God behind the, the veil in the holy of holies was made holy. To go into the presence of God was to be made holy, and so he wore them uh, the the Jews as gems vicariously. You couldn't get everybody in there, so the twelve gems represented people. This is called the the, br- is that the, the breastplate, breastplate of judgment. Yep. Okay. And so, uh, but he also wore on his body the ephod and this other vestment vestments made of the same four fabrics of the. Tabernacle of Moses, Ooh, right? The linen nice. and the three different colors of wool. And he had two stones on his shoulders. There were sardonyxes. They represented the sun and the moon. There were bells at the bottom of the vestment that represented thunder because they would make clanging noises like thunder. And then there were pomegranates embroidered into the vestment. For some reason, pomegranates represented lightning. I'm not sure why. Just like your Hawaiian shirt, <laughs> So thunder and lightning, Old Testament, are always sign who's around. God, right? Power, authority. So the high priest is acting as God, bringing the sun, the moon, all of creation, and all of humanity back into the presence of God by bringing them into the Holy of Holies. But the humans were the 12 stones. Then what is heaven made of? The 12 stones. So in a sense, the walls are called walls in the book of Revelation, but they're made of people. So it's kind of a symbolic notion. Imagine the sort of external outlines of Christ being the walls of his body. I don't think it means it's limited in space. So hanging out in heaven is just like sitting like a brick in the wall? No. So is there a temple in heaven? Heaven is the temple. Heaven is the temple. Heaven is the temple. the fourth temple. But don't think of it as as a building with walls and everything's inside. Think of it as... The infinite, the participation in the infinitely delightful right relationship with God and right relationship with your neighbor and right relationship with yourself. And that's what Christ is, is humanity and divinity uh, brought together. So heaven is not sitting around saying, oh, got nothing to do, right? Heaven is getting more and more and more and more fascinated by the infinite mind of God. So if you've ever watched a movie or a documentary, like, oh gosh, that was so interesting. Time went by. It seemed just like five minutes and it was two hours. 
that's because you've been drawn into this fascinating thing behind this. like a podcast that just goes well right like this I'm podcast sure this that keeps like going <laughs> but, that's great but the idea is heaven will be an active place where all of your flaws all of your inability to comprehend to understand will be gone and so you just have perfect association understanding of the mind of god forever which is endlessly fascinating and infinitely goes infinite right so it's not a place of doing nothing they call it heavenly rest not because you're snoozy and bored but because you don't have to do any work to know you can just rest in oh, that sounds the amazing direct kind of infusion of god's knowledge into you which is the most fascinating most exciting most interesting and never-ending thing for all of eternity Speaking of never ending, we should answer <laughs> questions so that this podcast never ends. Well, the temple is a complicated thing. This is what it takes. I All love right. it. That's great. Why don't we ask her a question about the temple? Uh, oh, let me get in my Rolodex of questions and see if we can find one. Okay. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here. But you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, guys, this question comes from Mark. Not the evangelist, just a dude named Mark. Mark says, I was recently visiting another parish with a new church building less than 10 years old. After Mass, I went to look at their painted stations of the cross, and I quickly realized that they were not the ones I was used to. They were, as it turns out, the scriptural stations composed by John Paul II. A helpful parishioner who was on the building committee told me that all churches built after a certain year had to use those particular stations. My internet searching has turned up no references to any particular stations being mandated for new construction. My questions are whether there is any such mandate, and if not, why, should, why would this committee think there was? I suspect the architect sold them on the idea. Maybe he sold them on the internet as well. Wanted to yeah, make maybe. A, a kickback. What do you have to say, Chris? I don't, First of all, what yeah. are the scriptural... <laughs> <laughs> stations of the I don't, I've yeah. never even heard of that well um, Veronica wipes the face of Jesus oh you mean what what are they individually or where do they come from that's John Paul II in 1991 introduced the scriptural way of the cross which that, is well the Pope celebrates them at the Colosseum at Rome every year and he just picked different scenes from the carrying of the cross than the other 14 that were arrested so I mean that were uh, included before so they have betrayed by Judas, condemned by the Sanhedrin, denied by Peter, judged by Pilate, scourged and crowned with thorns in one thing. Takes up his cross, Simon of Cyrene, meets the women of Jerusalem, is crucified. But then also he promises his kingdom to the repentant thief and trusts Mary and John to each other. So there's like a lot, a lot more stations. And laid in the tomb. No, still 14. 14. The, uh, first of all, the go-to document on this would be, in my opinion, the Director and Popular Piety and the Liturgy is a document 
by the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments from in the 2000s, maybe, maybe the teens, commissioned by uh, John Paul II. And what it does is in the first half of the document, it lays out a number of principles for the correct uh, prayerful celebration of these various devotions. And then the second half of the document, this is all available online, goes through a variety of different devotions, popular devotions, and applies these principles to them. So one of the principles is, is that the devotions should be in, um, filled with, inspired by the sacred scriptures, right? So think also of the, I know this isn't a John Paul II thing, but the year of the rosary, it was about scriptural rosary and incorporating passages of scripture into praying the rosary and things like that. Well, the same principle is holding for the stations of the cross is how can you celebrate the uh, the stations of the cross now having them inspired by the sacred scriptures and so that's well, the he, John Paul even added another set of mysteries for the rosary too yes right. yes he did that too um, so that that's the thinking behind the scriptural stations it's having them more faithfully more clearly based on the sacred scriptures what we'll say when you go to this document director and popular piety and the liturgy it has a section on stations of the cross uh, one of the thing it says there there are there are different types of stations different versions of the stations there's the traditional ones uh, there are some penned more recently by the holy pontiffs uh, so there are legit variations of the stations of the cross What's not negotiable, if I remember correctly from this document, is you can't. Fourteen is a, is kind of a given number, mm -hmm. so you can't Aren't reduce there the technically number. Technically, fifteen isn't the isn't yeah the resurrection. What it will say in this document is the is it called the anastasis? The each should end with the resurrection, right? So what this is another principle is the devotion should, as authentically as possible, express the Paschal mystery, which is the suffering and death and resurrection. And ascension of Christ. Although too, John so. Paul's scriptural ones end with Jesus laid in the tomb and not the resurrection, but maybe it's because right? it was a good maybe because it was a Good Friday. Uh, <laughs> it could I think. Be. Well, wh why is that? Why don't we? Why don't we ever see the fifteenth station in churches anywhere? Uh, well, whether you actually see a station, I think in a number of the texts you'll find is that there's a they'll end almost say in front of the altar with a, a, an it. account of the resurrection of, of Christ. So, all right. So to the question, is it mandated that you can only use John Paul II's? Sounds script? like no. no. Nope. But there are Just guidelines. The there are guidelines yeah. and they're found in this document. In, Pope, in 2007, Pope Benedict officially approved using those uh, scriptural stations in public, but doesn't mean they have to be used just that they may be used. So it's a devotional prayer that has a little bit of flexibility and a standard kind of uh, set of principles holds it all together. All right, Mark, I hope that answered your question. And if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.